Welcome to Let's with Amplify, where we have lively entrepreneurial talks focused on helping you grow your business through sound financial strategy. Here are your hosts, Jamie L. Smith and Jesse Ferguson. All right, we're back. Let's with Amplify, lively entrepreneurial talks. Are you excited for this one, Jesse? Let's do it. Let's do it. So the first topic we're going to talk about today is apocalyptic tripwires, five surprising reasons businesses fail. Can you guess why we're talking about this, Jesse? Any ideas? Because a lot of businesses fail. <laughs> That's true. And also, um, our friends at At Heart told me that we should pick topics that people are searching for. And guess what people are searching for in our community? They're searching about... Uh, why businesses fail. Well, they are, yes. And also, they're really into this uh, apocalyptic ideas, right? You've been watching The Last of Us, right? No, I haven't. <laughs> Do you know what it is? No. <laughs> so it's a good thing we're here to talk about the business part of it because yes. the, the pop culture we would not <laughs> be inspiring anyone to be paying attention to so the last of us was the amazing hbo um series that was filmed in alberta mm. and it is about a failing human society <laughs> and failing mm. human bodies we're gonna stick to just businesses and uh, today we're going to talk about not the common reasons that businesses fail, but the surprising ones. And this is a conversation that you and I have had many times, and I'm really excited to share it with our Let's listeners. So before we get into surprising reasons why businesses fail, let's talk a bit about the common and often cited reasons that businesses fail. And those include cash flow. We have another Let's uh, with Amplify episode on cash flow and how to prevent that very, very common reason why businesses fail. In fact, I think it's something like 86% or something like that always cite cash flow as one of the reasons that a failure happened. There's market research. There's knowing your client. There's team issues. There's market demand. There's business plan and strategy. There's access to capital. Those are all the reasons that are on the Stats Canada, the Investopedia, every single website when you search business failures, uh, what you'd find. And obviously, we see them. They're commonly cited because they are the most common reasons businesses fail. Any thoughts on those before we jump into the surprising ones and the ones that are less talked about and less prepared for? No, those all sound pretty common for sure. Yeah, definitely. So the ones we're going to talk about today aren't talked about as often, but they're really, I think, intriguing to spend some time discussing because we do see it happen and they're they usually take the founders and the teams by surprise. And as a result, the risks related to these failure reasons are less uh, less prepared for, less mitigated, and certainly, certainly not what is expected when you get into business. So we're going to talk about campaigns that are too successful. We're going to talk about using other people's money. We are going to talk about cash flow briefly in terms of the fact that it's a growth challenge and not necessarily a distress issue. We're going to talk about a North Star and how so many companies don't have one. And we're going to talk about companies that are just way too risk adverse. So those are the five topics for today's podcast video series, and I'm excited to jump in. So the two successful campaigns, an exciting one. I know that your pre-amplified days, you've definitely seen some of the inventory issues or big box store issues that can happen when you're too successful on your sales. And the two of us have had lots of chats about this. But just to put it in perspective, the idea is that people will hire or invest in marketing and sales with really, really big goals and 
big ambitions. And due to a lack of planning and often, frankly, cash flow forecasting and, and forecasting period, they're actually not able to deliver when they succeed. So some of the common ones we see is you get a contract with a big box store and it turns out that those terms and conditions are way more sophisticated or way more burdensome than you have the cash to invest and succeed with. You know, there's the old Groupons or what have you where people end up flooded with brand new customers and they weren't able to deliver on those coupons. Um, there's all kinds of situations like this. And I think it's especially sad and ironic because you put the time and effort into a great brand, a great campaign, your marketing resonates, obviously, your sales close. And next thing you know, that success is exactly why you're struggling and why you don't have the money to move forward. You don't have the team, you don't have the assets, you don't have the resources. So it is it is one of the more ironic and sad reasons that we're going to talk about today. And um, Jesse, you know, tell me some stories of where you've seen this happen. I mean, the one that comes to mind right away would be had a business that I was involved with that was trying to get into Costco and didn't realize it was pointed out very late in the process that the return warranty and sell-through requirements meant that if you didn't meet those kind of KPIs within that contract, they could send all the product back. When you ran what that looked like from a financial perspective, it basically bankrupted the company. So, yeah. And so, I mean, if you think about it, you put, if you're going to get into a, comp- into a big box store like Costco or Walmart or that, um, or even the online stores these days, like Amazon, et cetera, you can put a lot of effort into that proposal and that pitch and the brand and what's going to resonate and showing that you've done the market research. And so that's a massive upfront investment. And then if you win, like the story you're talking about, you obviously have to create that product and inventory and put all of that cash and effort into the product itself. And obviously, all of that was with, is with the intent of getting a decent margin and a decent return. But how frequently do companies think about the ability for the contract to have results in someone returning all that inventory or the warranties or what have you and think it's a bit of a surprise, right? Like how many clients expect this when they're going into this type of campaign? I expect, you know, you say expect it. Um, I would say a lot of clients go in blind. There's two types of clients. They're either driving blind or flying blind, or they haven't weighed, they're aware of it, but they actually haven't weighed the downside and upside risk. The downside risk is obviously what I just described in terms of like what could go wrong, Um, but there's also an upside risk. What if it goes really, really well? And, uh, you know, you sell through like crazy and you don't have anything to, I guess continue to meet that demand or your you know your production team if you're in a kind of a manufacturing environment or services team how you can deliver the service you know really the connection between operations and sales um, how prepared are you to meet that kind of growth most organizations aren't I would say yeah right so if we think about like those manufacturing examples there's potentially assets and a capex expenditure that's required in order to fulfill that new level of inventory or manufacturing, which maybe 
hasn't been put into the thought process. Um, to your point, probably. Well, have, you, have you talked to your suppliers to see even if they can get you? Exactly. If you think about, I mean, certain, if even if I think back to my distillery days, right? Like you can't get a still that would show up any earlier than six, eight, nine months. So uh, you you need to have that proactive planning in terms of even ordering those assets and equipment in order to meet those expectations, even if you have the ability to from a cash flow perspective, right? So it is some, it's, there's a lot to the success. There's a lot of strategic thought. Yeah, strategy and planning would be, I think that was on your list, wasn't it? You know, oftentimes a lot of strategy and planning go into starting a business, I would say. And, you know, that's probably a reason why early stage companies would fail. But once they've passed that early stage into kind of that first stream of, okay, we, we have customers, we have, you know, the ability to generate revenue, customers that want our product. But now you're into the stage of, you know, more people want our product or service and they kind of forget about the planning that they did to start the business, I guess. So planning should be something that's, you know, not put on a shelf. Absolutely. And sometimes we get so busy doing the short term. By the, the business as usual day to day that you, you forget to pick up your head up and say, what if? What if you're successful or what if you're not? Exactly. The other thing that we see is, you know, just even that classic Google ads. So for that's a small campaign in some cases. It can be an expensive campaign and a complicated campaign as well. But interestingly enough, a number of clients have had incredible success with Google ads. But then what they found was that Yes, they got new customers and new revenue, but oftentimes those that click and purchase aren't necessarily sticking around for the long term. So those are one-time customers or, um, or each time they're doing a small transaction or, or purchasing a small uh, service or what have you, they're shopping every time. So then the lifetime value of the client is not significant. And then when you start thinking about it from that angle the cost that you spent to acquire a client that you don't get a chance to serve more than once, the math doesn't end up working all that well because you're spending a significant amount to get them, but then you're not keeping them. And so, I mean, have you seen many clients with that type of marketing campaign and and success but unexpected cash failures or, or service issues because there's not that relationship and loyalty? It's very transactional. Yeah, I mean... You know, we were, we were looking at that for ourselves internally. I think that's the nature of the beast. You're always going to have a little bit of that, but I think if you, at the end of the day, you dic- if you're dictating the terms on how you want to work with people, and how you, I guess, evaluate and measure the importance of each client, then customer, I think you can manage it and still make money off a transactional client, but. You, you have to be prepared to, I guess, disaggregate your client base and treat them accordingly, right? Not every client's equal. And not every revenue dollar is equal. Correct. Absolutely. And, and certainly there's a number of businesses where high volume transactional mm-hmm. base 
is critical to their success. Totally. Like if you think about yeah. selling hamburgers at McDonald's or widgets at Walmart, those are successful. Right. But they've set the terms of how they're not everyone's getting a customized burger every single time they walk into, you know, McDonald's. I guess you can, but you're gonna get upselled. Yeah, and the person behind you will 25, honk. 30 seconds. And, <laughs> yeah. Exactly. They'll demotivate you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Anything else about successful campaigns that we should drive home before we move to the next surprising reason businesses fail? No, none. Of that. I think that the key here is really setting that plan. And as you mentioned, and yes, you might be taking something that's the blood of your business and is a proven success and an established brand. But when you're going into this new campaign, figuring out what does success actually look like? What does failure look like? Where do we break even? Um, can we afford the assets, the team, the resources, the inventory to fulfill a success? And if we can't, where do we, you know, where do we have capacity restraints so that we actually can make this better for our business? And I think that a lot of times we get super excited about the idea of a campaign and about success, that we don't step out of the sexy, fun marketing sales, exciting yellow ball chasing to, to put pen to paper and to put a forecast in place and figure out what it really looks like, both from a number perspective, but also a resources perspective. So I think, you know, it's nothing sadder than seeing a business struggle or fail because of because of a successful campaign. I think that we're starting sad, but we'll, we'll get more optimistic. <laughs> Other people's money. So this one's always fun. I mean, we've talked about how in order to fund growth, there's a decision to be made. Do you want to fund your growth through debt, which is inherently someone else's money? Do you want to fund your growth through equity, which is diluting your ownership and is truly other people now owning um, and providing the money? Or is there a way to do it with organic working capital, et cetera? And I know, you know, even if we're going to get vulnerable and talk about Amplify, when we fund new things, we make sure that we have the debt available and that it's that the that BMO has given us what we need to fund that new idea. But then to the large degree, we're trying to actually fund it through working capital. So it's a bit of a hybrid and combo approach. I'm a big believer that if you bite off the hand that feeds you by bleeding working capital and bleeding successful business lines in order to fund new ideas, that that is generally not the best practice. But again, there's no absolute answers in business ever. But there's, you know, there's consequences when it comes to other people's money. So maybe before we talk about how that could lead to a failure, you know, Jesse, what are your thoughts? Debt, equity, working capital, what are the key things to think about? And do you have a best best practice answer if you were to speak in absolutes, which you would never do? No, never. <laughs> I mean, I think it just depends on your risk tolerance at the end of the day. You know, if you have a very high risk tolerance, I think you can grow a lot quicker with, you know, bringing in liquidity and capital through third parties um, or friends and families, I guess related parties you know it's not something that you know that, that comes with drawbacks as well in terms of expectations from other people because you know they're giving you money for something um generally it's not because they love you um although maybe the friends and families but they will hate you pretty quickly if you lose their money but yeah i mean i think it really depends on your own risk tolerance and you know how many how how you know if you, i think you get into business so you 
really don't have a boss. I mean, ever really true. But you'll have a boss real quickly if you got demanding shareholders and debt holders asking you a lot of questions and life can become pretty miserable pretty quickly. So for some people, that's totally fine. You know, they they see a, they have a big vision and they think they can get there quickly. And sometimes that's what it takes in terms of market opportunity, right? Like you have a window and you're either going to capitalize on that or you're not. And, you know, slow growth and, you know, funding it through your own retained earnings is not really an answer. And, and obviously it depends as well on what kind of industry you're in and how capital intensive it is to actually get started and whatnot. So really depends. So definitely not absolute, pretty gray. Yeah, for sure. It's funny because just as a quick aside to your point about uh, about having bosses, I was out with a banker for drinks the other day and he said to me, he called me self-employed. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, well, you're your own boss. I'm like, I don't think you understand my life at all. <laughs> I've never had more bosses in my life. And none of that is because of other people's money. It's just because of, well, mostly working with you, I guess. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, when you have a team, when you have investors, when you have a partner, um, you know, the, the concept of being your own boss is probably one that drives people into entrepreneurship, but I don't know if they actually ever feel that they met that goal. <laughs> Not if they're going to be successful and surround themselves with people anyways. But, you know, I think all of those points are exactly leading into what can result in failure <coughs> is, is recognizing that when you do, if you do take other people's money, and obviously to some degree that can be through debt, especially alternative financing would have more in common with the equity side, but certainly equity and taking people's money as investors, um, you know, they are doing it for a reason, generally, as you mentioned. And so what can those reasons drive you to do that you might otherwise not decide to do if you had if you had all the choices in the world? And I mean, some of the ones that we see can be a more short-term focus, right? So the runway is short, and those investors have a payback period. And a lot of times, the investors that invest in the riskier startup or early-stage businesses have a very clear mandate in terms of how quick they want to see success and payback. And I mean, if we think about it from their perspective and turn around and, and go into those investors' shoes, you know, they might be investing in 10, hoping that, you know, eight of them pay them back and one or two of them actually give them a return. And so if, if that's how they're looking at you as one of 10, eight is a payback within a short, short period, and one or two is actual success, well, you're probably only taking their money with the hopes and dreams of being that one or two. And so, you know, that can be a misalignment right there because they want their money as quick as possible and they want in and out as quick as possible, but you, as the founder and the business owner, probably don't have quite a short term of a focus and might not recognize that you are playing a game that is inherently shorter term. And I mean, you've dealt with private equities in lots of times. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, there's usually a miscommunication gap in terms of expectations, I would say. Um, you know, most, most private equities are getting involved in, you know, a couple different scenarios. One is, you know, a exiting founder that business owner that is retiring and wants to out of the business and he just needs liquidity 
And in that case, well, I don't generally think because management's kind of taking over. So generally there's not too much of expectation gaps there. But where, you know, existing shareholders, management of the company, you know, owner-managed businesses where they're taking that money, if they have a different time horizon than what, you know, an outside investor has, then, and even just a return of capital, right? Um, as long as, if those expectations line up, then I don't think, usually I don't see a problem, you know, everyone's kind of on the same page. But, you know, if there is, you know, potentially, and sometimes, you know, they're aligned before the sale and all of a sudden two years later opinions change and uh, that's not communicated very well then yeah that you generally find yourself in kind of a uncomfortable situation for one of the parties in terms of expectations so interested in diving deeper into the topic of this episode every episode of let's with amplify has an accompanying ebook for you to download absolutely free Visit amplifyadvisors.ca slash category slash let's media to get access to the accompanying ebook for this episode. Each ebook helps you get the most out of the discussion that we have on each and every show. Head over to amplifyadvisors.ca slash category slash let's media to get access to the ebook now. And it's interesting because when you talk about opinions changing, the reality is that most of the time you're taking other people's money because either you're a startup or you're or you're starting a new department or region or service line or what have you. So it goes to be expected to some degree that opinions should change because there's a growth and a learning involved. So what you anticipate and plan and what actually pans out often will have differences. And, you know, it comes down to what you're speaking of in terms of communication, right? If those if you're sitting there as a business owner, even if you think about us and when we started all of the services that we now have running, I mean, think about accounting services. It's bookkeeping. It should be a simple service line, but it's arguably the hardest subservice that we started. And why? Because how we started it and our opinions and our plan and that we what we learned from actually hearing from our staff and hearing from the market changed our mind. But that felt organic and felt natural to you and I because we were in weekly, daily meetings experiencing it and feeling it and seeing it. But that outside investor who's given you the money, they're not hearing any of that. No, they're just looking at what the end result is, right? And thinking it's going to be similar to the original plan. Sure. Yeah. yeah, it can be a bit of a challenge for sure. It's funny, I was out for a coffee with, with someone this week, and they mentioned that they consistently run into clients and business owners who are in special loans with their bank or turnaround service departments within their bank, and they actually don't even realize that that's a negative thing because they actually think that means they're getting extra help and extra advisory and extra assistance, which... I've never heard that. I've never met a client that doesn't understand the challenge with being part of that department in the bank. But it's interesting to know that business owners are out there. And I think it's another example of not recognizing the risk of using other people's money and how expectations change. Have you encountered people that don't understand the difference between a regular lending environment and relationship manager versus when you move to that special loans department or what have you? Most of the businesses that I 
see that are going to special loans generally will have more professional management teams, so they're well aware because it makes their life a lot harder. Um, I don't see a ton of owner-managed businesses in special loans, so that's interesting. I mean, it's interesting from the bank's perspective because if you got a 100% owned private company, I would think the first place the bank would start would be start putting money back in, cash injection, <laughs> second mortgage on your home or whatever versus kind of special loans. But, yeah, I'd like to need to understand that more in terms of what type of businesses are going in. But, yeah, I certainly most companies I went into special loans or was about to go into special loans as a CFO, and I definitely was well aware of, one, the cost of lending was going to go probably double, right? Your interest rates are going up. Your fees are going up because, well, that all that extra service you're getting, I'll call it extra attention, it's going to cost you for sure. Yeah, absolutely. So it's another good example of how other people's money can run you into a failure situation. Definitely. So, you know, as you mentioned, sometimes bootstrapping and focusing on scale or investing in your process automation or a pace hiring approach isn't possible, right? So if you're if there's a window in the market or you're in a certain industry or what have you, you may it may be more of an absolute question like either I'm going all in and I'm using other people's money or or well, I'm not going like to succeed. Yeah, like tech tech is a perfect example. Like, you know, sometimes you have a market opportunity and you know, look at chat uh what is it called? Chat, chat. GPT. Yeah, I'm sure there was like at the time of that kind of being invented, I'm sure there was a bunch of different of those companies all getting funded, and it was a race, right? And at that point, there's going to be one winner, probably. Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, but I think investors are probably, you know, they're not looking at profitability and cash flow. They're thinking about, I guess, commercialization or of a product to win a race. And if you win that race, you're going to be pretty successful, but... I would imagine most investors at that point and founders are going in with their eyes wide open, I would imagine, other than everyone thinks they're going to (laughs) win. There's only one winner. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm not sure if they, if everyone is going in with their eyes wide open, but I think that's, that's the point to think about is traditional debt is obviously cheaper, uh, less strenuous, but you need to be at a certain point before you can access bank debt, right? You need to be bankable. And what does it mean to be bankable? Well, it takes a history and usually a cash flow history. You can bootstrap it, which means that you're scaling through automation, um, paste hiring and process, but you're going to have a slower road no matter how amazing your business is or how amazing your ideas or market share is. It's, It's inherently a choice of slower. Or you can do more alternative debt that smells and feels a little bit like equity, or you can literally take other people's money. And I think there's obviously some hybrids in between, but uh, there's risks and there's risks to all those choices and all the combinations of choices that you make. And it's really important to see that through and, and know that it could lead to a business failure. Definitely. 
So the next one we'll breeze over really quick because it's growth cash flow challenges. We did our first uh, video podcast a full hour on cash flow. And a lot of that time was talking about how growth results in cash flow challenges. So I think we'd ask listeners to definitely revisit that. But maybe just to quickly summarize how growth can impact cash flow and how that can lead to a business failure. Jesse, do you want to revisit some of your favorite points on growth and cash flow? No, you can. Okay. I'd love to. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So we see that companies often don't recognize that the cash flow has volatility and changes when you're growing. And that's because, you know, new customers, new regions, new needs will all impact your cash and the timing. And so often people don't prepare themselves and do some really easy and tangible ideas that we go into in a lot of detail in our other podcasts in order to prepare and have that cash and know the timing. So when you grow, rest assured, you will have cash flow challenges. And if you don't prepare for those, that can easily, easily lead to business failure, which is which is not obviously the goal. The next thing that we'll talk about is North Star. So more often than not, we, we know that companies either do set a, their values and expect their teams to live their values and they expect their salespeople to present their values in the, in the sales and customer process. And that's well known. I don't know if it's always fully disciplined and acted on, but it's, it's not uncommon for companies to set values and put the words on the walls, etc. We are becoming much more of a of a society where people run businesses that are purpose-led. We, we take the time to figure out what is our why, as uh, Simon Sinek would, would call it, and, and know that we're here for more than just profit and what's the purpose of our business, what's our bigger goals and our audacious goals. And obviously, businesses recognize that they need to have a strategy. And, you know, they know that in order to achieve goals, you have to be strategic about getting there. I would say most companies know that these things are critical. Whether or not they actually put them in place is a different story. (laughs) You think most companies know? I think they know. You don't think they know? No. Okay, give me some examples or thoughts on that. A lot of companies of late that when you talk about that, it goes right over their head. Like they don't even understand it? They don't have them. They don't know why. You're like the importance of it. Eh, That's too fluffy. Yeah, I've had lots of... I was in a strategy session, you know, a few months back, and they didn't have them. They didn't see the point of it, and yet they had a lot of employee issues. <laughs> really? Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So you bring it back to that, and you're like, they're like, well, maybe this is a little more important than we thought. But yeah, yeah, a lot of there's a lot of clients out there. I think the good ones definitely know and are doing something about it. Um, but I, I would say probably you could throw that into the mix of why businesses fail. Yeah, for sure. That's interesting because it feels like as an active reader of business uh, <laughs> literature that you would feel... In your bubble, in your bubble. <laughs> in the bubble I live in? Yeah, maybe you're right. <laughs> I feel like you would have, uh, you'd have a hard time not knowing it, but it, you, you might be right. I, was I come actually, across a lot of people never heard of Simon Sinek. Really? In yeah, business? Yeah. Some people don't know who Adam Grant is. Life wouldn't be as good if you don't know these guys. Um, (laughs) It's worth knowing them. Well, not personally, but knowing their products and thought leadership. I think a lot of, you know, there's lots of businesses that once they 
hit a certain scale and they start bringing in more professional coaches. That's generally where it gets introduced. You know, there's some business owners are obsessed with reading and continuous growth and learning and they probably pick it up sooner. But there's, there's lots of business owners, they just know what they know and they live in their bubble and they don't actually reach out for a lot of perspective, uh, whether it be through you know, business forms or coaches or um, reading or whatnot. So I, I, I think it's a mixed bag. I guess there's a lot of reluctant entrepreneurs too, right, that fell into... Or they think they already know it all. Yeah. Aren't actually looking for any help because their business is going great. They're making lots of money. They don't need the help at that particular point. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. So... You know, there's the values, the purpose, the strategy. It's, I mean, it's interesting. I was actually having a conversation just this morning where I was telling uh, telling the forum group how we talk about values on a pretty much a daily basis at Amplify and that, you know, if, if I could run a cult, maybe we'd run a cult, but you won't let me. <laughs> it's probably good. <laughs> but, um, you know. Cults all go to jail. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's not been Eventually. around here. <laughs> so, I mean, at Amplify, we obviously spend a significant amount of time on our values, talking about them, using them, uh, hiring with them. And, uh, and I think we're getting so much better with our purpose um, and, and obviously with our strategy as well. Um, one thing that we also do is we have the North Star of customer client experience for us and, and we define client experience as, you know, first of all, an outcome that happens when we live our values and watch out for those blind spots and opposing behaviors that are, that are the opposite of our values. And Client experience is about always striving towards our purpose, which is enhancing communities, amplifying opportunities, and cultivating connections. But what differentiates our client experience may be compared to other business leaders and consultants and especially CPA firms is anchoring on the strategy and growth of our client. And it was funny. I don't have a great eloquent way of putting this, but the other day I, I recognized that, you know, Jesse, when we named Amplify, Amplify, I don't know if we were brilliant or even thoughtful. I do remember the emails and, and some of the other choices that I'm very glad we didn't pick. <laughs> but uh, it's turned out to be a name that is so much more meaningful to me than I realized at the time when we picked it, because it's really about taking businesses that are successful in their own right and amplifying them, right? And helping them with financial strategy and helping them get better. And so many consultants and business advisors go into businesses and try to drastically change or restart or or just tear apart and rebuild their clients because they think they're the smartest guys in the room or that they know the best practice or what have you. And I don't think most of our clients are looking for that. They want to be getting better. They don't want to be restarted or, or pushed down and brought back up. So it's interesting because client experience and the name of our company all tie-in. It's about their strategy, their growth, and how we can amplify them. And so we've always had a dedication to a North Star. There's so many other North Stars that companies have. I mean, Amazon's a great one in terms of their customer experience and the simplicity and the ease of getting your product as quick as possible. Apple is obviously astonishing at their North Star, which which is beautiful and simple and easy 
you know, and then, you know, there's even the North Star of Walmart is most likely low cost, right? And all of these companies can have, are you the cheapest? Are you the best price? Are you quality? So many CPAs uh, go into business as tax or audit compliance with quality as their North Star, which is great. Timely, accurate. There's all kinds of North Stars that you can have. Uh, white glove service, reliable, luxury. I mean, what North Stars have you seen be successful and, and what companies have you seen that didn't have one and maybe that's why they failed? I mean, Graft had a great North Star, didn't it? Or no? Yeah, it was probably Graft was built on, uh, you know, Swiss quality, right? Came from the Mr. Graft himself. Oh, I thought it was wide feet. <laughs> wide feet was it's definitely it's like that was the how or the what the you know the end result but ultimately people with wide feet had couldn't fit into boots so you know it was about comfort it was about fit that was their north star comfort and fit and you actually see it on the on the on the skates um, so yeah that was definitely I think if we go back to like why businesses fail. I don't think they hold true to why they actually – one of two things. Either they are getting business just to make a buck. If they happen to be successful make the buck, then they keep chasing bucks, which then takes them in a million different directions, which ultimately sinks them in the long run. Uh, so that would be you know one kind of – they don't know who they are and they're not following their, their core purpose of – why they're in business in the first place. You know, again, going back to Simon Sinek. And then I'd say the other reason would be they may know who they are, but they don't do a good job at our, you know, the founders or the owners, whoever, leadership, don't do a good job at disseminating that kind of story through their people. And as they grow, it gets lost. And people at the mid to lower levels of the organization that actually are doing a lot of the work, um, don't feel connected to that purpose, that why, that North Star. So so it's a tricky game of like, one, do you have one? If you do, how do you execute on it? And I would say the execution piece these days is probably more of the more of an issue than probably someone coming up with it and slapping it on the wall or putting it on the website or talking about it once a year at a retreat so yeah and I think you know how do you execute on it and I think examples that we've seen work within Amplify is you know you leverage it to help you hire you use it in your marketing and sales I mean in some ways it's like the lazy answer because you decide on your vision your strategy your purpose your your north star and then you can just use it in every part of your business like it makes life easier But you do have to have discipline and consistency with that. I mean, even if we think about our op models, like you're deep in strengthening the Amplify Tech op model. And I'm sure that when you're making those decisions and figuring out how to direct the team, that this is something that you're anchoring and going back to. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And it keeps it consistent with our other departments too, right? A lot less conversations have to happen between you and I because we have these guardrails and we know what's acceptable and what's expected. Mm -hmm. Um, I find too that when, you know, as we lead leaders within Amplify and constantly help people with the challenges that they're experiencing, 
that if we bring it back to the values, they find the answer themselves so much quicker. Or if we bring it back to the North Star of client experience, that they they need less and less of our assistance and leadership and guidance. Do you experience that with the team that you're working with as they're learning it? Not so much. Not yet? Not yet. They're early. <laughs> we're not, we're, we're not, we haven't crossed that bridge yet. So Yeah. I'm sure it'll come. Not yet. But no, we do talk a lot about experience and like, I, I, I do think they're starting to pick up. I hear it a lot more in the language that they, um, you know, will be talking about communication and collaboration and things like that. And, you know, I hear them, you know, we, you know, we need to get better at this, you know, clients upset because we dropped the ball at this, i.e. maybe we didn't communicate well enough or so it, it's, it's starting to come, but yeah, I would say we're not at the point where they're self-guiding themselves. <laughs> but they're starting to recognize the challenge and how it's associated with yes. with it. Oh, but they don't have sure. the solutions yet. Yeah, they don't. That have, makes sense. Yeah, from they an don't have evolution the, perspective. Yeah, they don't have the guiding. They 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 don't see the light up top and follow it um, on their own. But um, they recognize how it's associated. Sure, the challenge is sure, associated. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah. that's a huge first step for a lot of them because they're very young. Yep, for sure. Young in Canada, young in age. Awesome. So, you know, in conclusion on that North Star idea and, and businesses that don't take their values and purpose and strategy that one step further with the North Star, the opportunity loss really is revisiting and reinventing the wheel because you're not anchoring on something that is very understood by the market and the employees. And so when you have that North Star, it drives the ability to hire, to spend money, to build all within a consistent framework because everyone understands that framework. And I think that's where the opportunity is in terms of decision-making and leading a business for sure. The last one that we're going to touch on today is, is that too risk adverse. And so you know, obviously in the small and medium business and to some degree in the growth businesses that we work with, we don't necessarily run into this quite as frequently, but it's very common in terms of businesses failing. And we we know of some Canadian businesses, if you think about BlackBerry or what have you, that, you know, maybe it's a lack of taking the risk of the new or, or reinventing themselves that resulted in, in not such great um, ends. So, you know, your short-term focus, your quarter-to-quarter, certainly if you're a public company, you're forced to be quarter-to-quarter. And as a result, it can be a lot harder to take big risks. When you have other people's money and those shareholders, investors, it can also be a lot harder to take those risks. Because at the end of the day, the vast majority of risks, I would argue, are somewhat of a big investment up front and a long-term result. Would you agree, Jesse, or you think that's not fair way of classifying risks? Depends on the stage of the business, for sure. I, I, I find most most businesses that I talk to are certainly willing to make sure bet investment, i.e. take risk, where they see a direct payoff in terms of revenue. Where I think we differ would be where they don't see that direct correlation to revenue. Like very easy when you have, you know, a contract in hand from a customer that wants to order X amount of widgets and I need to go to the bank and invest in a, you know, 
a piece of equipment to make those widgets. You know, is that really risk-taking? They might think so. I don't think so. Very different. Like, I'm going to hire three more salespeople because I think they can go out and get it. I'm going to invest in some underlying technology to help my operations run more efficiently. Don't know if it's going to pay off or not, but I think if I do it, it w- will be more set up for to manage or handle that growth when it does come in. So I think Canadian businesses are generally much more risk averse when it comes to like not knowing what the future looks like and taking that bet versus definitely American counterparts, which are, you know, it's very easy to convince an American to invest in this business. Very easy. You know, tell them why, tell them how, and they sign on the dotted line. <laughs> yeah, like those Oracle numbers that we heard the other day of like 29-day average to yes. buy an ERP. Yep. I don't know a human I've ever met that would buy an ERP in 29 days. You. <laughs> Me? That's why I partnered with you so that there's no chance I would do something like that. <laughs> You're right. If the demo was good and, demo the, was good, and, the, and the person was, was charming. And the discount was awesome, for sure. You're you right. I buy. might do it. But that's why I'm smart enough to partner yeah. with you. <laughs> you bought a lot days. of softwares over the day. I have. None of those are hundreds of thousands of dollars, <laughs> though. Still, still money. True, true. Well, the um, the thing that you brought up actually is really interesting because it's sometimes it's those risks of hiring, right? Whether it's hiring a CFO, I mean, for what we saw, hiring an executive, hiring a sales team, hiring what could be perceived as back office. That is a risk that you don't see a lot of uh, growth clients willing to take to take. You know, should we invest in our human resources and get that HR professional? Should we invest in our financial strategy and get that finance leader? Oftentimes, that's the risk they're not willing to take because they don't understand the direct line towards the return. Exactly what you mentioned, because it's not an obvious revenue. It's not a contract. It's not an exact customer that they're going to receive. I think you can convince them of that for sure. Like I think you well, can. We wouldn't even be in business otherwise. Well, yeah, I think you can. <laughs> I think you can draw the line, and 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 I think they can actually get you can lead them to that water. I, I just think whether they want to take that bet or not is where I see a lot of businesses kind of step back and say, eh, I'm not willing to bet. And the reality is they're the same type of businesses that will, on the other kind of side of things, talk about how they want to grow, yet they don't want to invest. So you can't have one without the other. And again, that goes back to risk tolerance in terms of how much risk you want to take on in terms of those bets because they may not always turn out well and and uh, <clears throat> at least uh, weighing the downside and upside risk of those bets is probably you know the first place to start at least. But there is that concept that if you're not growing, you're dying, and that's arguably not true for every industry, certainly. But there is some truth to the idea that if you don't take any risks and you try and ride stability too long, that it can be a slow exit or door to failure. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And, you know, to some degree, not taking a risk is equivalent of just not making decisions. Mm -hmm. And uh, certainly that can lead to failures. So I think 
to wrap up the idea of being too risk adverse, you know, the question is, does your forecast show all profitable, stable results with no costs, no burdens, no investments? And, you know, that's a sure way of knowing whether or not you're taking risks within your business. Because if everything's stable, everything's, um, you know, very standard, a little bit more than last year, you're not seeing big investments, you're not seeing big costs, big burdens, then chances are it's because you're not taking risks. And uh, what is the consequence of not investing in your business and not investing in some risks? Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, we, we, we moved on to NetSuite when we were quite small, quite in, in our infancy. And, um, you know, there's definitely a direct correlation now on uh, that bet. Um, now we didn't really have a choice being a partner, but um, put, we did look at it before we were a partner and we actually didn't take that bet, right? We actually backed out of it. We chickened out. Yeah, of, of moving to an ERP system, absolutely. We talked yeah. our way out of it. Yeah, it was sure. COVID though. Yeah, it was COVID. It was scary. Yeah, it was scary. <laughs> but, I mean... Do you think we should have done it then? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah, for sure. By the time we did it, we were too busy. Um, it would have been a great time to do it project-wise, but, um, but you know, we, uh, we chickened out as well. Yeah, for so. sure. But to your point, if we didn't have an ERP in NetSuite right now, I don't even know how I would do my job, to be honest with you. Because no. on a... Remember the one day when, the, when, it sh- when it was offline? Oh, yeah. We had to have coffee. No, no one knew what to do all day. That's what I mean. You and I had coffee. We like hung out. Actually, that was kind of nice. Yeah. Maybe we should pay them to. No, no. no. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, but I mean, honestly, on a daily basis, it's you're looking at utilization of time. You're looking at gross margins of jobs. Billing, time entry. Everything. I mean, it's just, it's so fundamental to our ability to scale and yep. and grow and if we were still on the startup systems, well, we probably would just run blind because it would take too long to even bother understanding. Totally. Yep. Yeah, that's very, very true. So we've touched on these apocalyptic tripwires, five surprising reasons businesses fail. We talked about the too successful campaign, other people's money, cash flow challenges from growth, the North Star and being too risk adverse. We recognize, obviously, that the more common cited reasons for businesses failing, like cash flow in general, market research, knowing your client, team, market demand, business plan and strategy, and access to capital, are more likely to be the reason a startup or even a five-year business uh, doesn't make it next year. But these surprising reasons, I think, deserve a bit of attention because there's ways to mitigate the risk. There's ways to put it in your strategy and in your financial forecasting so that it doesn't become a problem and it isn't the reason that the door is closed. So any last thoughts before we wrap up today's session? Plan ahead. Absolutely. Plan ahead. Put it in a quantified plan even better. And, uh, and then you'll know this is the risk and this is what I do if I hit that risk. Eyes wide open. Awesome. Well, thank you. This was fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's with Amplify. We hope you enjoyed the show and got some value out of today's talk. 
If you did, we'd love to hear from you. We invite you to leave a review on your favorite podcasting platform or comment on YouTube. And be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you listen so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to check out more information on all of our episodes and free ebooks, visit amplifyadvisors.ca slash category slash Let's Media. Production of the podcast is by At Heart Creative and can be found at atheartcreative.com.